Welcome to the Conversations That Matter podcast. My name is John Harris. Well, uh, you may be surprised this morning as I am holding this little kitty. I am not a cat person one bit. In fact, um, I never saw myself being a cat owner in my entire life. Uh, But this little guy showed up next to our home the other day and the neighbor actually uh, texted me and said there's a little kitty outside calling for its mother and it was caught in this little area um, by the window, uh, the basement window, kind of like a two or two and a half foot, three foot, probably more than that, about three three feet or so uh, deep area and this little kitty was, was crying down there. You're getting energy now. You want to go away. And uh, anyway, um, my wife, it, it was over when my wife saw, saw the little kitty. You want to go? All right, well, just say hi to everyone real quick. <laughs> yeah, we, we were going to call it Oliver, and now we think it's a girl. So we're, you know, we're, we're looking at other names. If you have a suggestion for a name for the kitty, um, this is so outside my wheelhouse. <laughs> Pepper was the one I suggested, but my wife doesn't seem to like Pepper as much. You don't know how to get down from here, do you? Here, I'm going to help you. All right, bye, kitty. So that is a side of me you likely have never seen, and I wasn't planning on showing it to you, but I guess it does exist. Um, And if you've been watching 80 Robles, he's been raising chickens. You know, I actually raised chickens when I was younger, when I was like 12 years old. My parents believe in entrepreneurship, so um, I had had like a bread business, which basically meant I paid my mom to make bread, yeah, it was, instead of an allowance, my parents wanted me to, to learn entrepreneurship. So that, that was the bread business. And then right after that, I said, I don't like making bread. I'm going to raise chickens. I'll sell the eggs. And I did that for for a few years, actually. I took care of these chickens. And uh, you don't get as much attached to chickens. Um, I remember the day, uh, some people are going to be offended by this, but I remember the day that um, we had to... Um, we, we, we had to mercifully end the chicken's life. I'll put it that way. I don't know how else. I mean, look, if you go get chicken nuggets at McDonald's or someone's doing that for you. So just just remember that. If you go to KFC, someone's doing that. We, we tried to be merciful about it, but I did have to rename the chickens. Things like, you know, like Hitler, <laughs> like, you know, instead of Henrietta. You know, I had to, it had to sort of con- conceive of them a little differently before we did that. But uh but I did raise chickens um, the whole way through a few times, and uh, and we had I had a few dogs when I was younger, uh, but they were outdoors until until I was in my late teens. My parents got a dog they kept inside, so we we and we never had cats. We never had cats. Um, cats, you know, we, we cats were evil in my experience. <laughs> Neighborhood cats would scratch you, and uh, my grandparents had a cat. It was mean, and so you know I don't know at what stage the demons enter the cat. Um, Right now, that little kitten, um, yeah, there, there's no demons in that little kitten. But, you know, it likes to play. It likes to bite around. We're trying to, to keep it from doing that. But when it, when it gets older, that'll hurt. So, so we, we have, to, uh, have to figure that all out. But my wife is very happy about it. And, uh, and that's been taking up a little bit of my time. So um, for, for those who don't like what I have to say on this podcast, you, you can't be too hard on me because I just had a little kitten in my in my arms or or actually maybe it works the opposite maybe i'm a james bond villain not that i watch james bond i'm a good conservative christian <laughs> but uh no it, you know all the villains always have a cat and they're like you know petting the cat while they're talking about how they're going to kill james bond or something so i don't know however you want to take that i i have a cat though now and i'm not sure i'm having an identity crisis over this 
you were not expecting me to start the podcast off that way, I'm sure. But uh, but but there we go. Um, not only cats, but there, there's actually something else that is more important that I've been spending actually a whole lot more time on. And, and that has kept me from doing an episode. I was going to drop some important things last week and I just I couldn't get to it um, because of this. So uh, this is what I've been working on, though. So what this is, is a 157 page, as it stands now, thesis on the evangelical left. And I've been writing it this semester. I haven't talked about it much, but it's now going through a peer review process. It'll probably change a little, but I did some research for it last semester as well. And, and it's really more of an objective history. It's not meant to be critical. I'm not writing all my opinions. I'm just writing down what happened and trying to answer why it happened. So the, the interesting part of all this is, um, and this will come up later, I'm going to talk about Jonathan Lehman's identity politics episode at T4G. Uh, some folks have asked me to comment on that. I'll keep my comments as brief as I can, but I will talk about it. But, but this principle is going to come up, this, this idea at least. Um, evangelical leftists, Jim Wallace, Ron Sider, Sharon Gallagher, um, you know, the list goes on and on. Uh, Wes Gramber, Michelson, you know, John Alexander, these guys who were influenced by new left radicalism, campus uh, new left radicalism usually. They go off to college. You know, they started out in these conservative Christian homes, just about in every case. And then they will go off to some either seminary or usually college, secular college, sometimes high school. And they get along the way somewhere, they, they are influenced by new left ideas. They start rubbing shoulders with Marxists or, you know, some variety of Marxism. And they accept the new left critique of America and how the church has just been so complicit in this. And it's America is a crummy place and the church has been complicit in, in its crumminess. That's basically the critique. And, and, and so what they do is they, they, they try that on for size for a little bit. They get, you know, like uh, Richard Mao, Jim Wallace, both members of Students for a Democratic Society, right? Uh, Jim Wallace is like organizing protests. He's really deep into it. And so they start, they reject their Christianity or they have a crisis of faith or they change denominations or something happens in their, their, their religious uh, outlook. They, it, it, it gets rattled by this new left critique. But then they realize, you know what? Secularism doesn't work. That's not a foundation. I remember, you know, Sharon Gallagher, uh, Christian World Liberation from Berkeley, California. They were, they really liked Francis Schaeffer over there. And you think Francis Schaeffer, he hated communism. Well, yes, but they were looking for a critique of secularism. They, they wanted some way to have a moral foundation for the new left critique that they now believed in. And so they adopted uh, the new left ethics, if you will, but they tried to, underneath it, put uh, a metaphysics that was still Christian. And so they returned to their evangelical roots and they brought with them their new left ideas. And what they would say, and I have all the original source quotation and everything, they would say, we accept the new left critique. We accept Marxism. You'll even hear that. We accept the Marxist critique. Marxist, but, but the problem is it doesn't go far enough. They, we need Christianity to change souls, not just change the system, but that's important too. That's part of, you know, if you accept, you know, the Neo-Kyperian Richard Mao kind of take or the liberation theology take, well, that's important too. You know, we got a salvation, the atonement of Christ extends uh, to institutions and government, etc., cetera, um, which in their minds also meant the new left critique. That's part of the salvation, uh, part of the redemption of society. So they would say that's important, but individual souls are where a lot of this, e this evil comes from, from there. Uh, so it doesn't go far enough. So we need the Marxist critique 
um, those, those ethics, those principles, but we need it to the foundation to be Christianity. And then eventually what they would say, and different, different, you know, figures in this movement at different times, they would just say, well, we don't, Mark, we don't need Marxism at all. Marxism is not even part of this. It's just the Bible. It's only the Bible. We see all these things. And, and what they would talk about was redistribution of wealth, <laughs> egalitarianism, um, all the things that the new left critique uh, was was saying they would say, but they would just try to find Bible verses to back up what they're saying and say it's just biblical. That's all it is. And we're seeing the same show again. We're seeing this. We're seeing the same exact show again. And and there are those uh, within the established evangelicalism uh, who are winking and nodding at it. Uh, today, Al Mohler is a good example of this, by the way. And and in the coming weeks, um, I'm going to talk some more about this. I know some of you have asked. When are you going to talk more about what's happening at Southern? Um, it, I will. I, I am going to talk. Not this episode, but but I will say this about Al Mohler. Al Mohler was uh, mentored by Carl Henry. Al Mohler, you know, he endorses Donald Trump. He's against critical race theory. He blasts it on his podcast, but then he winks and he nods at the guys in his own seminary, at the guys in his own denomination. What's up with that? Well, Carl, Carl Henry was did something very similar. Carl Henry signed the Chicago Declaration in 1973. Which, if you read that, it is it is the new left critique. It talks about mutual submission of husbands and wives. It talks about the disparities and how bad they are worldwide and rich and poor, etc. Uh, the church has been complicit in racism, etc. It's all that stuff, right? Carl Henry signs this thing, and then Carl Henry turns around, and I have the quotes in the, in this uh, work that I've done. Carl Henry says, "Well, you know, Chicago Declaration after he signed it." It really doesn't address Marxism like it should. It really needs to go after Marxism, you know, essentially is what he says. And Carl Henry endorses Richard Nixon. And so the evangelical left doesn't really know what to do with Carl Henry because Carl Henry, um, and, and there were more people than just Carl Henry that were like this, but Carl Henry's a really, he, he's kind of a, he's a figure that uh, I think stands out more than even Billy Graham. Billy Graham wasn't so much a theologian. So when Billy Graham platforms you know, t speaks alongside of Samuel Escobar or, you know, platforms, uh, some of these other guys like Tom Skinner or, uh, you know, John Perkins or something, you know, Billy Graham's not thinking in the same terms as Carl Henry. Carl Henry knew what was going on. Very, he did interview with uh, Wes Gramber Michelson and Jim Wallace. But, and, and for those who don't know, Carl Henry, he's the guy, um, he's, he helped start Fuller Seminary, Christianity Today, he, uh, National Association of Evangelicals. He is Mr. Neo-Evangelical. We got to get away from fundamentalism. Evangelicalism is is a new thing. It's neo-evangelicalism. So he opened the door for the the new left to come in, but then he would say, "I'm not not I don't agree with the new left." It's it's very similar to what you see um, Al Mohler doing, and and so the the way was kind of open for them, and the way is open today for the the current crop of social justice warriors. Um, and and there's a connection between the two. There really is, and I, I have found it. So I'm excited about putting this history out there when I get a chance. I uh, got some other things in the works as well, but um, but that is why I didn't put out a podcast last week, and uh, hopefully that whets your appetite a little bit. Um, <clears throat> another project that's happening that I'm part of uh, is this. This is the trailer for First Baptist Naples uh, documentary uh, that Enemies Within the Church is putting out. Check it out. Why does someone need a gag order on a church? What's up with that? But it is undeniable that race played a part in the final days leading up to 
this election. You were branded as a racist. Yes. But you're not a racist. No. It was slander. Total. Thoroughly social justice-driven components of the Southern Baptist Convention, J.D. Greer, Kevin Ezeld, are involved in changing the direction of a large megachurch in one of the most conservative areas of a swing state, Florida. All of a sudden, Pastor Wicker's now retiring, but then he's just gone. It wasn't just pushing to get him to leave. They had to ruin his reputation. For some reason, that was important. And you know, that pastor transition team that went on even before, you know, there was a consulting group, uh, Oxano, that was called in. And eventually, uh, they came up with some candidates. And, uh, and of course, Marcus came up. Uh, homosexuality is, it's a sin. Now, if you have, now maybe somebody even in this room, you may have same-sex attractions. I don't know. I would say that's not a sin. He just was not qualified. We had different guidelines that they were supposed to fall under, and they changed the guidelines for him. Because he was a plant by the SBC to come in and take the position of senior pastor. Hey, First Naples family, this is Kevin Ezell, president of the North American Mission Board. He's going to be a fantastic pastor. You're going to love him. Every one of these woke young pastors have some connection with Al Mohler. They were ruling with an iron hand. They're running the church now. There's a lot of individuals that don't even realize that that's happening, and they're just going with it. I don't want to see other churches go this way. This will destroy the church in America. So that is going to come out within the next few weeks, I'm told. Enemies Within the Church is doing a great job. Throw them a few pennies if uh, you can. Um, I appreciate all the support you're giving me, by the way. It helps me do what I do. I've been doing some of my work with them. In fact, this week, I'm actually uh, going to fly somewhere to do a top-secret mission that you will find out more about soon. Uh, but it is important. And look, paying for flights, hotels, that kind of thing, When you know, I, I don't really make money off this. This is something that I, I do because I, I love um, the body of Christ, and I, I see the gospel being corrupted. I see um, foreign ideas uh, that are, are actually antithetical to biblical teaching taking root, and, uh, and I, I don't want to see that. And, and you're not alone um, in this. You, do, you need to know that. There's, I get contacted by so many people that are interested in, in what I'm doing and um, what others like me are doing. And you know, they feel isolated. You're not isolated. And uh, I appreciate those who have supported me on Patreon and, and beyond, you know, sending me checks, praying for me is more important than any of that. I, I appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, please pray for enemies within the church as well. They, they have a lot th that they're sitting on right now that needs to be released. And um, they're trying to make up the difference so that they can uh, have the money to promote it and to get it out there. Uh, if you are, by the way, if you're a whistleblower, if you, and I get contacted all the time by whistleblowers, right? But 99% don't want to go on camera. They'll lose their job, their reputation, etc. The, the people you just saw in that trailer, I mean, they risk their reputation to come on camera. And I really appreciate it. And look, some of you aren't in a position you can do that. I get it. But if you are in a position you can do it and, and, and you're inspired by what you just saw in that trailer, please, please contact enemies within the church. It's easy to do. You can go to their Facebook page. Um, you can go to their website. There's, there's tons of places you can go to contact them. But... They would love to get your story. If it, again, if you're willing to go on camera and talk about it, um, we would really appreciate it. They would appreciate it. So uh, there's my little spiel. Uh, I want to give you uh, some coming attractions here. 
before we get to, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, the quarantine situation again, and I have a few thoughts to share, and then we're going to talk about Jonathan Lehman's um, identity politics thing. Uh, I, you know, I've been critiquing, like I will later, kind of on the fly, but I haven't put together like a step-by-step, here's the hard copy, print it out, share it with your Sunday school kind of material, and this summer I, I intend to do that. Your, your support definitely helps make that possible, but that's really, that's where I'm going. I don't want to spend as much time on the exposure, though every time I say that, something crazy happens and I feel the need to expose, but I want to start spending more time on the education. Let's talk about these ideas. Let, let's identify them and let's root them out when we see them. So that's where I'm at. Um, that, that's an exciting thing. Um, other Oh, the, here's the other thing I, I wanted to share with you. Um, I'm going to talk about, just, just for a minute, if you wouldn't mind, seminary education, because I've been reached out to about this by a number of folks uh, since, uh, I think it was two episodes ago, I talked about, hey, we, we need to have another seminary. And I'm talking, in the context, it was what's happening at Southern. We have professors now who are free to teach uh, that are conservative. We have um, donors who are pulling out of some of these places so that we have finances are now becoming uh, somewhat available to do something. You know, let's do something. And I didn't, I, you know, I gave you the tip of the iceberg. Um, really what's happening is behind the scenes, there are people who are watching the SBC implode. And they're thinking, they're already thinking about what's the next thing. And uh, I know of at least, so, so I think I've been contacted, let me think about this, two online seminaries I believe have contacted me and then two um, they haven't started yet but their potential attempts i'll put it that way so preliminary stages but a potential attempts at brick and mortar training institutions of some kind and so i'm i'm, I'm in contact with folks about some of this stuff and my my whole goal i'm not gonna i don't want to be part of leading any of this stuff um i'm you know i i'm a 30 year old man who uh is you know i'm looking at other things if i was 60 maybe and you know, had had some of this experience under my belt. Sure, I, I you know, I, I would be maybe thinking I was a pastor, I had a church, I had resources, you know, maybe I'd look at, at doing something like that. But um, my, my goal is to just get people talking to each other to make connections. Some of these guys don't know each other. I want to connect donors with, um, with, with professors, with churches, with, you know, see, see what we can come up with um, out of this. And, and I'll certainly express some of my ideas. Uh, I, I definitely have thought through seminary education. I've been at um, three different brick and mortar campuses uh, for seminary. I've been at Masters, I've been at Southeastern, and I've taken classes at Liberty. And and here's here's the thing I want to say about seminary education, because I've seen a little bit of this. Um, there's, there's, number one, there's an advantage to having a church on the campus. Um, not, but, but it's not enough to just have it on. Most, I mean, even Southeastern had a church on the campus, but it's a church that's actually invested in the seminary, a seminary that's invested in the church. And the two are, you know, they're, they're, they're not separate entities. They actually, you know, dovetail with each other. Um, the, the closer you can get that to happen, the better. And, and we know this. And that's one of the reasons um, every single time, I'll tell you what I tell students who reach out to me or potential students, because this happens multiple times a week usually. John, where do I go to seminary? I don't know. Everything seems bad now. It's all social justice. And I say, look, there's no perfect seminary, number one. There's no perfect place because we're people. But um, I would start start out looking, depending on your theological tradition, etc. I would start looking at expositors. That's the first one that, that I always say to look at because they don't have their seminaries as these separate institutions. They actually blend, which is, which is really the model you want to begin with. Sort of a, a discipleship, uh, church 
um, ministry model combined with the education. All right. So that's the first place. Now, most of the time, uh, the people that I'm talking to who ask me about this, it's not an option for them to go to a place like Expositors for a variety of reasons. Sometimes it's they want to go higher in education and uh, they need a, a certain kind of accreditation in their minds to do that or, or their denomination. They, they're just they're Presbyterian or they're uh, usually they're Southern Baptist, but they might have an eschatology that doesn't necessarily line up with Expositors. So, so you need to do your research. When I say go to Expositors, do your research and see if it's something that fits. Um, but but I do recommend them first. Um, after that, uh, oh, and by, I should say this too, by the way, if you're looking at undergrad, because that's a seminary, if you're looking at undergrad, like Bible school type of stuff, I always recommend first Appalachian Bible College. And that is just because um, I, I know enough about what's going on there behind the scenes to know that they are trying to take a stand against this woke social justice movement. And that is rare, I will say, for especially a, sort of a fundamentalist um, era institution because, and this is what I've noticed, is that because there's such a line between politics and religion, well, we, we just don't talk about politics. We just talk about, you know, theology here. They, it's hard for them to sort of get outside that box and realize there is a political movement with theological assumptions. It's an alternative religion, but it's political that is coming to you. <laughs> so it's not that you're getting involved with politics. Politics is getting involved with you, and the battle is coming whether you want it or not. And so Preparing your students for this is really important. This is the biggest apologetics issue right now of our day, and it probably will be for a few years at least. And so um, it's good to know about Mormonism and cults and all that stuff, but you know what? This is actually, this is the thing, this is what secular humanists, which most of our country, practically speaking, is. This is, this is what they're all falling into. And so uh, it's important, I think, to try to go to a school that is at least trying to address that uh, apologetically. So... If you can't go to Appalachian Bible College, if you can't go to Expositor Seminary, here's, here's my advice to you. And most of you who reach out are Southern Baptists, so this is what I'll say. Find a school where you can shadow a professor who agrees with, with you on this. <laughs> Someone who is conservative, who sees those political, uh, the, the theological implications of this political movement, who knows what's happening on their campus and is against it. Um, the safest bet for you is probably Mid-America if you're Southern Baptist or Midwestern. You're still going to come up with, there, there probably are some woke things there that you're going to find, but there's professors there who you can shadow. And you're going to have to do some of your own research on this. Don't, I would advise this, don't talk to the administration. They're going to give you all the right answers. Uh, they're going to make you, their job is to try to make you feel comfortable. We're not woke, we're not. Um, talk to professors uh, if you can and, and just see who you'd be comfortable with maybe shadowing. Southeastern, now Southern, probably not the best options, but you can survive there. Uh, and this isn't the only issue. If you're Arminian, you may not want to go to a Southern. If you're Calvinist, you may not want to go to a Southwestern. So there's other things to consider. But if, if the main thing you're looking at is the social justice movement, you know, that's, the, that's kind of the, 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 the range. You have your Midwestern and your um, Mid-America over here, and you have your, you know, your Southern and uh, your you're uh, southeastern on the other end. And here's, here's what you can do. And, you know, the three brick and mortar places I went for for my seminary education um, all taught this. Learn Greek, learn Hebrew. Um, I don't I'm not one of these guys that necessarily says you have to be an expert at it. I, I would say I'm not an expert at it. Um, um, I'd like to be someday. I really would. But 
uh, enough to at least really know how to use the tools. Uh, you should be able, I would think, at least after you're done with Greek to uh, Greek 2, to open a Greek Bible and kind of at least get through it, to be able to give your own translations to things. Um, and and so that, that would be my advice, is to try to, to learn those things. And you can learn that anywhere. You could actually don't have to go to seminary to learn that. There's plenty of online tools for that. Or you can go to, for Hebrew, you can go to your local rabbi. So, so, so those two things are important. And you can learn that at the Wokus Seminary. They still have to teach you Greek and Hebrew. Uh, or, or they should have to teach you. They, they should at least offer it. Uh, the other thing, and I'm probably biased in this, is church history is important to me. Um, I think you should have three semesters of it, but that's because I'm biased. Uh, most places do two semesters, and, uh, and if you're Baptist school, they'll probably make you take a, a course on Baptist history. So um, get some church history, understand kind of in general, theological ideas, time periods. And then uh, the other thing I think is really important, um, and this is maybe another area I'm biased, but I think apologetics is really important. Know kind of, okay, what, what, what kind of um, objections am I going to get once I am pastoring? And apologetics will help prepare you for those objections and to be able to minister in those contexts. Uh, a lot of the other stuff, honestly, you're just you're going to learn on the job. I mean, theology is important; it really is. Um, I tend to think, though, that uh, and hermeneutics. I honestly, I forgot about that. Hermeneutics is very important. You need to be able to take hermeneutics, and that may be a class. If you go to Southeastern, you're going to get kind of a more of a reader response hermeneutics, most likely. So you may want to do some research on that before you go. Get a good grammatical historical um, book on on hermeneutics and and learn that, but. But yeah, hermeneutics, church history, languages, um, theology, I would say, is, uh, I would put that fourth, I guess. Theology is important, but I think you, you learn theology as you're going through the text and engaging with the text uh, as well. Uh, some of the other classes, I call them fluff classes, but classes on discipleship, um, pastoral leadership, that, that kind of stuff, honestly... If you can avoid taking those, I would avoid it. That stuff, um, it might be helpful for you. I mean, depending on who you are, but I wouldn't consider those necessary. You learn that in a mentorship situation with another older man and elder uh, elders that you can shadow, you can learn from. That's where you really should be learning that stuff. But like visitation, the ordinances, like that, that's all stuff. You shouldn't need a class on that. You should be able to just learn that from whoever you're being mentored by. Uh, those are my, that's my two cents just off the cuff uh, on on seminary. But I wanted to get it out there because I've had a number of you contact me uh, after two episodes ago, and um, and you're really interested in in this idea of maybe a, a new theological institution of some kind. And we are talking about a church based model. Some of those I, I have talked to you about this, and uh, and I'm excited about it too. But it's not going to be off the ground right away. This will take time, and so that's why I'm I, like I said. You know, if you're interested, I'll put you on the list. Um, but um, in, until that happens, uh, there's other options out there. And, um, and I will always, you know, even if, if what I'm talking about now uh, gets off the ground and there's an alternative in the Southern Baptist world uh, or that, that orbit, probably outside the convention, but in that orbit, I would probably still recommend to you, yeah, go to Expositors, you know, go to um, Appalachian Bible College, check out those places. 
Uh, there's probably a lot of other places, and I'm sorry if I left out your favorite seminary. A few people said, oh, haven't you looked at this one or that one? And, and the, here's the truth. Um, there are there's some others that I'm thinking about that I'm like, yeah, those are good, but I don't know enough. I'm not comfortable in every single way maybe to like put my wholehearted endorsement out there and say, yes, go there and, it, and it'll be great. Um, expositors and Appalachian Bible College, I'm pretty comfortable giving an endorsement to. So... Um, Again, that doesn't mean they endorse me. It just means that uh, I do endorse uh, what they're doing. All right, let's get to some uh, meat now. I feel like I've been doing an introduction for about half an hour, and I'm ready to, to get into some stuff. So let's, uh, let's start off with a question. Was the Apostle Paul a criminal? Was the Apostle Paul a criminal? Verse 8 of 2 Timothy chapter 2 says, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David according to my gospel. Number, verse 9, for which I suffer hardship even to imprisonment as a criminal, but the word of God is not imprisoned. I was reading this this morning in my devotional time, and I wanted to point something out to you. I'm scrolling right now over the word criminal. He's saying I'm in prison for the gospel, but I'm suffering. I'm, I'm in prison as a criminal. Click on the word. Uh, the word is kagurgas, and it, it means criminal. <laughs> But, uh, or evil worker. But the reason you can say evil worker is uh, if I scroll down here, and you, if you know Greek, you, you can tell very easily, but this is from another word, kakos. If you go to Romans 13, and you go to the word evil here, verse 3, for rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil, it's the word kakos. It's the word for evil. Paul is, being, is suffering here, as he says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, as an evil worker for sharing the gospel. And it struck me as I was thinking about this that it depends on what perspective you're looking at this from, um, whether or not you think Paul is a criminal, an evil worker. Is Paul an evil worker? He describes himself as an evil worker. He's suffering as one. But was he an evil worker? Was he a criminal? That's what a criminal is. One of the things that I think it's important to, to, to understand whenever we're talking about ethics, especially when we're talking about government and the civil magistrate, is this. There's a difference between malum and say and malum prohibitum. Any first-year law student would learn this. Uh, malum and say, these are both Latin phrases, means evil in and of itself, wrong in and of itself. It's morally wrong. It could be legal, but it's wrong. And then there's malum prohibitum. Malum prohibitum means, well, it's, it's wrong because it's prohibited, not because it, it, it's evil in and of itself, but because the government says uh, that you shouldn't do this or, or some kind of, you know, it could be your parent telling a child you shouldn't do this. It may not be evil in and of itself. Um, you know, th and there's lots of examples we could use. Is it necessarily evil to go 65 miles an hour on a road? No, it's not. But is it evil to go 65 hours, miles an hour on a road in a zone that says the speed limit is actually 30 miles an hour for the public safety of uh, those that are using the public taxpayer-funded road. That would be wrong, right? But then it's not because—the the wrong isn't in the fact that you're going 65 miles an hour. The wrong is in the fact that you're not valuing human life. That would be the actual evil, and that's what you would be punished for. But it's all, it, it's all underneath the veneer of this law, uh, the speed limit law. And so there's a difference between those two, col 
concepts, malum and say, malum prohibitum. So let's go back. Let's talk about uh, what we just saw in 2 Timothy and in Romans 13. When Paul says um, in verse uh, 9, I suffer hardship even as uh, to imprisonment as a criminal, but the word of God is not imprisoned. Is he talking about malum and say, or is he talking about malum prohibitum there? He's talking about malum prohibitum. He's talking about the fact that he has gone against what the authorities have said he can do, and he's being punished for it. Did he actually do anything evil? No. But he's calling himself an evildoer, right? From the perspective of the governing authorities, he's an evildoer. That's how he's suffering. He's suffering as an evildoer, but he's not an evildoer. Romans 13. What's the purpose of government? Verse 3, for rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Kakos, same root word. What's the context? What's Paul talking about? Is this malum and say? Is this malum prohibitum? If you look at chapter 12, I'm not going to go through all of this with you. I know I went through some of this with Pastor Kerry Gordon, but the context is really set in verse 1. It's about being a holy sacrifice. And if you go through the rest of Romans chapter 12, and I would encourage you to read it. We're not talking about malum prohibitum. We're talking about things that are actually evil. We're talking about malum and say, keeping ourselves pure from those things and doing the right thing, actual right. And so um, when he gets down to uh, do not become by evil, right? But overcome evil with good. That word for evil there is, again, kakas. Do not, he's talking about things that are evil in and of themselves. And that context continues into Romans 13. So what can we draw from this? Turn with me, not if you're driving, but if you're not, turn with me to Daniel chapter 6. And uh, I am using, of course, my assault Bible for this. We, we have to do that. Um, let's go to verse 7. It says, All the commissioners of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the high officials and the governors have consulted together that the king should establish a statute and enforce an injunction that anyone who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for 30 days shall be cast into the lion's den. Now, these jealous satraps know that Daniel prays three times today and he's public about it. And they're trying to trap him. We know this because we see behind the veil. But if you were in that situation, you wouldn't see it at all. The king didn't see it. Um, to them, it, 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 the law has nothing to do with trying to single out Daniel, right? It's an across-the-board rule. It doesn't discriminate against those who worship Yahweh. It is just across the board, and it's only temporary, 30 days, just temporary, can't pray, something that God has commanded us to do. Something, and, and to be honest with you, um, I mean, pray without ceasing is in the New Testament, right? <laughs> so the concept was there, we're supposed to pray, but to actually find an actual command that says, well, you have to pray all the time, doesn't exist. Daniel doesn't have it, but that's part of Daniel's worship. So Daniel's in this position temporary, not discriminated against, 
And um, he could have cl sh shut the window, right? He could have said, I I'm just not going to be public about it. I'm still going to do it, but I'm not going to tell anyone I'm doing it. Um, or, you know, he could have done the whole thing. He could have done the protest route, right? He could have just, we're going to lead a protest to the king right now. We're gonna, I'm going to be really loud about this. But Daniel didn't do either one. Daniel actually just kept doing what he always did. He didn't change his habit. His tradition, which is not technically something that he has to do, right? I mean, does, nowhere in the Bible does it say you have to pray three times a day. And you have to do it publicly so everyone sees you. But that's what Daniel did, and he didn't change. He just kept doing it publicly. Well, what happens? Um, King Darius signs the document. He's fooled, right? And then uh, Daniel knew that the document was signed. So he didn't do this ignorantly. He entered his house. Now in his roof chamber, he had windows open toward Jerusalem. And he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God as he had been doing previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and supplication before his God. They approached, spoke before the king. The king said, basically, this has to be carried out. It can't be revoked. Daniel's thrown in, and then you know the rest of the story, right? Daniel is saved. And those who singled him out, because their motives were made known to the king, were the ones that were actually punished. God delivered Daniel. What do we get from this story? What does this have to do with anything we're talking about? Daniel could have taken the easy way and he didn't. Technically, Daniel could have kept praying um, and he didn't. Um, Daniel wasn't singled out, not that he knew of, not that the king knew of, not that those outside would have known of, but he decided to keep doing what he was doing. Malum and say or malum prohibitum, that rule that the king put out there. It's definitely not malum and say. Daniel was not punished for evil. Neither was the apostle Paul. He was treated that way, but that's not what he did. He didn't do anything evil. What's the job of the government? It's punish evil, evildoers, malum and say. And so this actually ties in to this whole debate about churches and Romans 13. And I, I have a few things I want to share. I mean, I've said a lot about this already, but it's a continuing debate. And, um, and I notice, I mean, I'm not on Twitter all the time, but I've, I've noticed kind of the, uh, kind of the level of the discussion on Twitter. And I want to inject some things into this that I don't think have been injected quite enough. I want to read a passage for you from Francis Schaeffer. It's his book, How Should We Then Live? I think it came out in the 70s. Here's what he says. Rome was cruel, and its cruelty can perhaps be best pictured by the events which took place in the arena in Rome itself. People seated above the arena floor watched gladiator contests and Christians thrown to the beasts. Let us not forget why the Christians were killed. They were not killed because they worshiped Jesus. Various religions covered the whole Roman world. One such was the cult of Mithras, a popular Persian form of Zoroastrianism, which had reached Rome by 67 BC. Nobody cared who worshipped whom, so long as the worshipper did not disrupt the unity of the state, centered in the formal worship of Caesar. 
The reason the Christians were killed was because they were rebels. This was especially so after their growing rejection by the Jewish synagogue lost for them the immunity granted to the Jews since Julius Caesar's time. Let me read for you a passage from 1 Peter about persecution. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. Paul is giving a list of things you shouldn't suffer for. We're talking here malum and say. We're talking if you're murdering, if you're a thief, if you're an evildoer, again, the root kakas, or a troublesome meddler, uh, this denotes getting outside the authority, the chain of command, uh, being obnoxious. If you don't suffer for those things, don't be a jerk. <laughs> That's the John Harris translation. Um, but if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. I don't see a lot of discussions going on about malum and say versus malum prohibitum, but they need, they need to happen. We need to think through this from that perspective. Paul suffered from the perspective of Rome. He suffered as an evildoer. From the perspective of God, he did not suffer as an evildoer. He made trouble with the state. Like what Francis Schaeffer said about early, the early church is dead on. The state didn't care about Christianity. They could care less. As long as you did the sacrifice to Caesar. And that was not something that was owed to Caesar. They could, just, they could do their whole religion as long as they made the sacrifice to Caesar. Hail Caesar. They wouldn't do it. And that is the reason that they were persecuted. They were persecuted as Christians. And no, it wasn't because they shared the gospel. In fact, most of the time, Christians are not persecuted at the root of it, from the logic, at least, that the government uses when the government does the persecuting. They are not persecuted, generally, just because they're Christians. That happens. But most of the time, when it's justified by the government, uh, it is not just because they're singling out Christians. Doesn't happen. It's because they're in violation of some ordinance or principle the state wants to enact. They won't participate in state worship. In the case of Daniel, he wouldn't change his habits. He's persecuted for opening his window. Now, What's, what's the, the telos? What's the point of all? Where am I going? I put out a, a post uh, a few days ago. Well, maybe now it was a week and a half ago. Um, nine barriers that I see. And this is, it was just thrown together in about 10 minutes. So it, there could be more. But I came up with nine barriers that someone who says it's sinful to meet for church right now, which I've seen, um, would need to, to overcome. Because what, what's happening right now, and you may not see it, is the state is favoring. The state is making a choice and telling you that worship of God, what he commands, it's not essential. But other things are. That's how, you, that's how you know the emperor has no clothes in this. When there's liquor stores and grocery stores and Planned Parenthood in many places, and the list goes on, restaurant drive throughs etc., but you can't have a drive through service. I mean, this is how you know the state is prioritizing the material world over the immaterial world. It's telling you what you should value. It's making a value judgment here. We're going to shut things down for the virus, but these things, these are essential, essential to the functioning of, of our society. The state says so. 
So you can obey the state. Let me let, let me um, bring you through this. Just to, to let's get outside the box, guys. I think so many of us are inside the box, and I want to have as much grace as possible. But let's get outside of it for a minute. Leviticus 13 authorizes the magistrate to quarantine a person who is voluntarily examined by a priest and found to be sick. Nowhere do you find the magistrate authorized to quarantine healthy people otherwise not examined. So that's hurdle number one. And look, I know there's a lot of questions, and I can't get into all of them. I do think that Jesus and Paul both take the ethical principles of the Old Testament and apply them. The principles. I'm not saying you apply everything from the Old Testament today. That's not how this works. But even in, um, there, there's a number of passages in the Old Testament that talk about the, the law of Israel, you know, the example of Israel being a light to the nations. Yes, there's things specific to Israel, but there's also things that are supposed to be a light to the nations. And there's also things that are applicable today. And so I do think that we take these principles and we, we see how to apply them. And this is how I, I look at the general equity here of Leviticus 13. There is a, a, a pattern for what the magistrate should do in quarantine. This is Malam and Say. What the government is authorized by God to do, what, the gov- what God says, this is, this is the government's role. Not malum prohibited. This is malum and say, if it's from God, if these principles are from God. So we can, we can wrangle about that more, but that's my first barrier. Second, if you can justify the quarantining of healthy people who haven't been examined, you'll need to justify the magistrate infringing on the jurisdiction of ecclesiastical authorities by canceling their services. So this is, you know, government, you're, you're, you're out of your lane. You know, think about it this way. Would you let your pastor into your house to just eat from your refrigerator or spank your child or whatever it may be? He can just come in whenever he wants, do whatever he wants. Well, you're, you're commanded to submit to him and he's not asking you to sin. It's not a sin for you to let him rummage through your fridge and take stuff. Well, you say, oh, that's stealing. Well, yeah, but you're committed to uh, submit to him though. So why would that be stealing? Why can't he uh, discipline your children? You say, well, that's my job. Well, but you're commanded to submit to him, right? When you, whenever you invoke those kinds of principles, what you're saying is there's a barrier, there's a limit to his role. So that the principle is not, this isn't how it works. This is, I've seen this all over the place. As long as the government doesn't ask us to sin. Yeah, that's, that's not how this works. Let, let, me, let me show you something here. Check out this story from WorldNet Daily. Uh, city demands churches turn over names, addresses, and phone numbers. Officials want information for surveillance of members. And of course, this is for the public good, right? This is because they want to keep track of people who may be infected with uh, the coronavirus. So uh, what city is this? Kansas City. Several churches in Kansas City, I guess. Um, so, So this is what's going on in Kansas City, according to this article. Now, if this is the case, think about this with me. Is it a sin to hand over the names, addresses, and phone numbers of your church members to the government so they can sur- have surveillance of them. Is that a sin? You, you have to face this one square on. Is it malum and say, malum prohibitum? What? Well, if you violated it, you're, you're definitely malum prohibitum, right? You, you violated that because the, the government's telling you to do it, right? I mean, if you think that they have the authority to do that, which I don't think, but let's let's just say that they do. So you're violating... So you'd be in sin, right? You'd be in violation of the typical way most Christians think of Romans 13. If you object to this, then the objection that you have to make is that they're outside of the boundary of their jurisdiction, which is the same point we've been trying, many of us have been trying to make from the beginning, is the government doesn't actually have the authority to cancel church like this. They can advise. You can work together with them. And if you have health reasons, every situation is different, then 
by all means. But look, if, if you're doing this because the government said so, and that's really the reason, and, and there's really no other reason that you're, you're canceling your services, if you're a church, then I want you to think through this. What if the government then asks you to do this? If you're in Kansas City, it's a real possibility. What logic are you going to use? All right. So um, where are we up to now? So that was, I think we, was that number two, number three, um, number three. So let's go to number four now. Oh, no, no, that was number two. So number three, if you can justify the first two, you'll need to now justify a civil magistrate violating the right to private property by canceling services on privately owned ground and privately owned buildings. Not all places value that. We do. So there's another reason. I mean, part of this is uh, the system of government in the United States. If you can justify the first three, you'll need to justify how in a governmental system, which guarantees the right to both assemble and worship, the present governing authorities should be allowed to overturn the wills of the framers of the government. And this is something you hear all the time, right? Um, you, you try to invoke the Constitution. And you say, look, Constitution doesn't allow this, or the Constitution of the state doesn't allow this. And then what people will say, well, yeah, but it says, it says in Romans 13, it's not talking about a document. It's talking about people. Well, who put the Constitution together? Who swore to uphold that Constitution? That's right. People did. Framers of the Constitution of the United States put it together. Framers of the, your state constitutions put them together. And your civil officials are supposed to be protecting those things. And they made a promise to. If they violate their promise, who's the one in sin? And who do you submit to? Do you submit to those who formed the, the framers? Do you submit to, um, you know, the, I mean, we're, we're having to go back in time now because we're looking at, but this is something that's supposed to still be in effect. And everyone who's over you in the civil realm has basically sworn allegiance to this, right? Uh, but they're not, they're the ones in violation of it. So there's actual people. If you follow the path back, there are people that you're submitting to. They may not even be alive now, but you're submitting to them. So which, which one are you going to submit to? The people who formed the Constitution and the rules? Or are you going to submit to those who want to violate them today? It's, it's not just a document, guys. you got to make that decision. Uh, so... Let's see here. Uh, verse five, reason five. If you can justify those four barriers, you'll need to justify how governing authorities who favor liquor, grocery, and hardware stores, as well as Planned Parenthood and restaurants, should be allowed to violate equal protection principles to force churches to close. And this is where the discrimination comes in. This is where, you know, this is the equivalent of the state gets to tell you what's essential and non-essential. And worship just doesn't cut. Does, not important. If you're still fine with the governing authorities overstepping these boundaries, you'll need to explain why Acts 5 and Daniel 6 don't give churches an example for civil disobedience in circumstances where they are required to disregard God's commands. And look, this is, this is a situation in which uh, we have to disregard possibly. Now, I'm going to get into this in a minute. I don't want to get deep into the weeds yet, but God's commands. We, we're told to meet, right? And there's reasons for it. Number seven, if the government closes... Closing churches is still okay. You'll need to justify why it's imperative for churches to cease from physically meeting together with, which includes administering ordinances, demonstrating the full spectrum of gifts in 1 Corinthians 12, and elders praying for the sick. Can't do those things if you're not physically meeting. If disregarding these commands from God is temporarily fine, you'll need to think through what kind of logic you'll use to defend churches meeting if the government arbitrarily uses safety to permanently close or regulate church services. So what I'm saying here is, Get ready for the next reason that the government uses in the name of health or some, you know, 
altruistic uh, motivation to close your church or to suppress you in some way. Um, this isn't about my rights. You know, the rights are tethered to responsibilities. It's not, this isn't, you know, revolutionary. This is actually order that we're talking about. The revolutionaries are the ones that are overturning this order. So yeah, Christians aren't supposed to be troublemakers. We're not supposed to be revolutionaries, which is why we shouldn't go along with those in public office who are that way. If you're able to jump those hoops and you're still clinging to Romans 13 for justification, you'll need to now argue how discriminating against churches in the face of a pandemic with an extremely low death rate is good according to God's law. Malum and say good, not malum, prohibitum good. And of course, the wheels are falling off this whole thing now, and I don't need to even go over that because um, it's now starting to be universally understood that uh, this was a big overreaction. And um, so I, I, I mean, I've traced some of those things out, but all this to say, this is a lot, there's a lot more questions that need to be thought through, I think, in this whole uh, discussion. And the, the responses that I've seen, um, I wrote down a few of them, uh, Twitter world responses mostly here. But the arguments that are, are given is we need to be a good public witness. And I say, what, what better public witness can you be than to, and, and again, I've always said, do this responsibly. We are, you know, there's a health concern and you want to be as wise as you possibly can. But drive-in services, what's the public health risk there? If everyone's going into Walmart, you're safer in your drive-in service um, than you are going to, to a place like that. Um, if you're meeting in small rooms, if you're distancing, if you're taking, you know, washing hands and all the other health precautions, wearing masks, whatever, which probably wearing masks probably doesn't help. It probably hurts, but... Um, What's, what's being a better public witness? Meeting, saying we're still here. We're, we're showing the community. This, this is the public witness. It's, we're willing to, to risk a little. Because if the community views it that way, if they think it's a risk, we're willing to, to worship our God. We're commanded to. And we're going to be responsible, but we're commanded to. And you know what? The door's open for you too. Because this is the place. This is the recognizable place in our community. This is where the, hopefully, if you go to an old church, this is where the graveyard is. It's where the church bell is. It's the place that proclaims throughout the community the gospel. And we're not closing down. That's the public witness. Other objections. Um, I've already went over this one. As long as it's not a sin. <laughs> Doesn't work that way, guys. And I pointed out why. Um, online church is, is the same. I want to show you this. There's a quotation for you that I think you'll find interesting. This is from a book I was reading recently called No Place for Truth uh, by David Wells. He says, Jerry Murray Brown in America, says in America, it is television that is providing a common sense of identity to the diverse groups that make up this pluralistic society. So you have people of different languages, but they have a sense of participation in American life because um, of the video images they experience together. So at moments like the Challenger explosion or the invasion of Iraq, Americans are glued to their sets. They want the latest information, but they also want to share an international experience. And indeed, the fact that so many are watching these same images at the same time may seem to be the last vestige of solidarity that remains in a vastly diverse and fragmenting society. Listen to what David Wells says. This is illusion. However, this is not solidarity but simply a multiplication of individual experiences stripped of all relational connections. 60 million people may watch the same images, but each does so individually, not in communion with others. 
Now, I pointed out the full spectrum of spiritual gifts. I pointed out the administration of the ordinances. But do you think there's another reason that we're supposed to meet? There is. There is. You're watching me right now. I'm not against technology, obviously. You're watching me probably on YouTube or listening to me on iTunes or some podcasting service. But I'm looking at a camera. I'm not looking at you directly. I hate to say that. I mean, I'm thinking of some of you, but I don't see your reactions. I'm not reacting to them. You can't interrupt me. You can't um, get my attention. You can't talk to me afterward. You're only seeing a very small part of who I am what I want to show to you. Meeting together, not just for a service, because there's more to a service than a message. It's not just music and message. Uh, there's fellowship. There should, there should be a lot more going on than just that. But they're all supposed to be connected together. And God was wise in how he designed this to function. Trying to fragment all these things to, to say, well, we're... We're doing the live stream and, uh, you know, that, that's, that's the, our church service. Um, it's better than nothing, but you can't sustain that for long. And so, you know, that, that was one objection that I, I wanted to share with you. Um, now you're going to want to dive into David Wells some more to find out more about that. But I think what he says, he's on to something there. You know, watching a live stream is not, it's, it, it's an individual experience. It's not a corporate experience. Um, I, the, the other thing I've seen a little bit of this, but the car, car services are inadequate and I, and I just have to <laughs> usually coming from people who support live streams, um, no well, car service. Cause I, cause I have posted that I, I went to a car service. Well, what I've seen at, at the one, I, I can't speak for all of them, but the one that I've attended, um, a few times, um, we've done communion, we've done baby dedications. Uh, we've gotten out of, so maybe this is where we violate the rule. We've gotten out of our cars, some of us, those who are comfortable, and we've talked at a distance with one another. There's been some fellowship. Um, uh, I've, I mean, I actually, uh, <laughs> last week I brought little Kitty, actually, and uh, I showed Kitty to uh, to some of the, um, so some of those who were there. Oh, by the way, those who want to, <laughs> squirrel, so those who want to, suggest names for kitty um girl names would be best we think we think it's a girl now so yeah oliver was my wife's idea for a boy boy name but now we're not so sure um so there there you go but yeah i mean i had some of that um and I, i'm actually amazed at, at the connection that you can have i mean i can see the person next to me in their car um I can, you know, those, if you got a windshield that doesn't have a tint, if you're in the front, which I usually try to be, uh, you know, they can see you. So it's not, it's, I don't know what people think of drive-in services when they say things like that, but there, there's ways you can actually do them that I'm actually impressed with. Um, not saying it's necessarily ideal, but it, it's more doable, I think, than, uh, certainly than a live stream. And you can, you can function that way. All right, so, so those are some of the objections. Now, here's what I wanted to say um, for everyone else out there who is struggling through this, and I think it should be a struggle. Don't just take my word for it. Research for yourself. Look up what I'm looking up. Um, think through malum and say malum prohibitum. What is Romans 13 talking about? Uh, 
you, you need to answer these questions for yourself. And I'm not, I'm okay if you come down on another end of it, by the way. I'm not like a hardliner that says like, you must believe uh, the way that I believe it on this topic. But what I've noticed is I, I think I'm in the minority right now as far as my, the way I view Romans 13 and the way I view this situation, which actually shocks me a little bit. The Romans 13 thing doesn't shock me as much. Um, and I don't know why, because I, I took a class, I remember two semesters ago on the American Revolution, and I had to read a number of sermons. Um, if you're familiar with the Black Robe Regiment, there were a lot of pastors really behind the revolution. And, and they, I mean, really, you should call it the American War for Independence because it wasn't a revolution. But uh, there's, I mean, they knew about Romans 13. I've read sermons on Romans 13, using Romans 13 to justify what they were doing, how England had overstepped its boundaries and they had to submit to the local governing authorities. And, um, and, and unfortunately, I think the way history is taught now, we just think, oh, it's all enlightenment thinking. And, it, and a lot of prominent pastors in the conservative uh, camp have, uh, they just think, yeah, that was wrong. American Revolution was wrong. And um, Romans 13 says it was. And, and so I don't know if it's a pietist interpretation, Anabaptist. I'm not sure where this came from. It seems, I, my gut tells me that it sounds Anabaptist-ish, but somehow this interpretation has become, I think, the popular interpretation. And that hasn't always been the case throughout history. And so um, I think because I've been exposed to some of that stuff, I tend to, I, I see the logic and I say, yeah, Romans 13 doesn't say that, it says this. But I'm in the minority today, right now, as we're currently speaking, I'm in the minority for my views on this. And there are some really, really great men that I respect, will continue to respect, that know way more than me, much more godly than me in so many areas. I look up to, I respect, I will continue to respect that disagree with me 100% on this. Diametrically opposed to what I just told you. And I still love them. And I still, I'm not gonna go mudslinging on them or say that I, I will share my convictions. Um, and, I, and I think this is what I wanted to say, I guess, is for all of us who are thinking through this, um, be gentle as, as much as you can, but be direct, be gentle and direct, truth, love. Try to, um, to, to put, you know, as, as, as respectful as you possibly can, and perhaps as um, incrementally as you possibly can, try to ask hard questions, like some of the ones that I've asked in this, and get those uh, who, who you know, whether they're part of your church or whether uh, there's people maybe you know on online or they're friends of yours, you go to different churches, but if they're under this thinking, I would just say, and you, and you wanna engage it, ask hard questions, get them to think through it themselves. People generally don't like being told what to think or what to do. And it's just, I think a gentle answer turns away wrath. Um, harsh words stirs up anger and uh, you attract a lot more bees with honey or bears with honey, whatever, however that saying goes. So that's what I would suggest uh, you do and don't get bent out of shape about it. Um, I know that I felt that way. I've been beside myself a little bit. I've been like, where's my country? <laughs> where's it going? Why in the world? I mean, this is madness what we're going through right now. Uh, completely crashing our economy. And I, I've shown you, I've done other episodes so you know. Um, but, you know, ranting about it, point out those things. That's what I try to do on this. But be calm. God is still in control. And most of the people in your life who probably have taken the other approach, even people that know more than you, they probably haven't thought through it in detail. That's my guess. 
I'm just listening to some um, some pastors, uh, some online pastors that I've enjoyed over the years talk about this, and I'm thinking, and I don't think they're they're thinking through this. I remember, you know, one pastor was saying, who I, one of my favorite pastors, favorite preachers, uh, was talking about how, well, the Puritans, you know, they would sometimes take a month off of church in the winter, and I'm thinking because they physically probably couldn't go to church, like in New England, uh, they, they're. Like they literally couldn't do it. I was raised up in the Northeast, so I know what it could be like. And yeah, there's times when it's physically impossible. And, uh, you know, so you, you do your best with what you have. Um, but, you know, th this is a much different situation than that. And uh, so anyway, um, I just want to encourage you guys. Like, you know, you, you may be even going to a church right now and, and all they have available is a live stream. And sometimes that's justified. Look, if you have an older congregation, if you have... Um, I mean, I don't even pretend to know all the factors that could go into this. Maybe Romans 13 isn't even the factor. Maybe it's really that they literally legitimately have health concern. They legitimately, for whatever reason, think what, what you know, what the government's telling them about this is true. Okay. Uh, I might want to have a conversation about that, but if they're legitimately under that impression, then okay, that's the justification. But, um, if the justification is only Romans 13, then I would approach it very gently and, uh, try not to let it ruin the fabric of the body. If you possibly can, you know, this is, this is something that I think we're in. This is not something that churches were ready for. You got to understand this for those on my side who, and I'm preaching to myself here. We, we have to understand no one was ready for what happened and we're, we're, they're still reacting to it. Everyone who's trying to figure this out. And if you didn't have a theology that was fully, um, that you hadn't thought through these things first, uh, then you're going to be trying to react to it and figure out, well, what's the best way to approach it? So I only have a few minutes left to talk about Jonathan Lehman. Ah, I wanted to give that more attention, but I waxed long. So let me, let me give it the quick treatment here. So Jonathan Lehman did this talk um, a few weeks ago for, I think it was a Together for the Gospel conference online, and they released the transcript, or at least, I guess, his notes on Nine Marks, which is what I looked at, and some people sent me some helpful things in uh, thinking through it as well, and um, it's dangerous, guys. I, I thought at first, so the first half sounds good, and this is, this is such a typical, like, evangelical industrial complex thing to do, where um, Russell Moore does this all the time. They, they, they pick a binary. They say, well, there's the right and there's the left. And, uh, you know, well, they'll give all the critiques of both. So if you're a right winger, you think, oh, he's going after the left. Great. If you're a left winger, you think, oh, he's going after the life, the right. Great. And then they say, well, the gospel is the third way. Christianity offers this third way. Um, and, and you just feel so good about it because, oh yeah, that's right. And, but then you, you know, you read the end of the article, like usually a wall of words and you think, I didn't really actually learn that much. I just, Gospel's good, but it didn't actually answer the, the core questions, really. And Jonathan Lehman's article is kind of like that. It, it's like as long as one of my podcasts. I mean, how does anyone <laughs> have time for that? Uh, it, it, it really does. He really does ramble quite a bit and says probably way, way more than he should. But in that wall of words, it, it, it's be, because you go through different emotions through this whole thing and you forget about earlier parts of the article because it is so long, by the end of it, you're kind of like, he ends on a good note. So you feel like, oh, good. And he gave some of the critiques that I would give, but there, there's some poison in this. And I want to point this out to you because I think most people are probably going to miss it. And if they're not uh, trained in, or if they, they're not familiar at all with uh, identity politics or even critical race theory and that whole panoply. So let, let's start off with what identity politics is. Uh, 
Leisha Garza, writing for the Othering and Belonging Institute at UC Berkeley, says the term identity politics was first coined by black feminist Barbara Smith and the Kumbahi River Collective in 1974. Identity politics originated from the need to reshape movements that had until then prioritized the monotony of sameness over the strategic value of difference. So um, this Kumbahi, however you say it, <laughs> River Collective in 1974, if you look it up, they're Marxist. Uh, don't even, they don't even really hide it. And so the, it's Marxists that came up with this term identity politics. And what's the reason? Um, there was a need. It was responding to a need to reshape movements. What movements? Movements already in existence, guys, to reshape them that had until then prioritized the monotony of sameness over the strategic value of difference. So, the, so, so here's the thing. They're, they're creating allies. So this is what you have to understand about identity politics. It is political. Number one, it is for achieving political objectives that are Marxist. That's how it started, guys. I'm not making this up. That's the history of it. Instead of focusing on we're feminists or we're um, whatever minority group, um, we're same-sex attracted, whatever. Instead of focusing on that's who we are, you're focusing on we have something in common with this other group because we're both what? Oppressed by the straight white male, by the system, the hegemony. We're oppressed by it. So we're going to join forces together to go after the bad guy. That's identity politics. It's forming a coalition. It's Marxists in the 70s forming a coalition to do what? To overturn the hegemony. This isn't a culture war. This is a culture siege. This is uh, the culture that was there, the culture that is there, that is falling. Um, and that includes all the traditions of Christianity, that culture, that hierarchy. Let's join forces to go after that. It is not Christian, guys. It is after Christianity. This is identity politics. Make no mistake about this. And the fact that Lehman kind of skips over some of this, it, it should make you upset. But anyway, uh, here's another long definition you can screenshot and read later. <laughs> I don't want to read this whole thing. Uh, long story short, let's see, what would I want to pick out from this? Um, egalitarianism. Egalitarianism is linked with freedom and liberty. So if you want freedom, everything's got to be equal. And this is the struggle for that. And uh, so, and, and I'm going to let you read that more uh, if you want a more in-depth dive on some of these sources. Let's get into the, the nitty gritty here, though, because I just don't have much time. Uh, here's Lehman's definition, by the way. And Lehman fleshes this out more. Lehman gives some actual, he, he even talks, he mentions offhand, he says, yeah, there's feminists uh, started this. Um, sort of offhand, he says that. He says, yeah, it's, that, it's, it's a stepchild of Marxism, you know, he says here. Um, it's, it's interesting, though. Check this out. Identity politics is what he says is not pure Marxism. In some ways, you could say it's the child of Marxism and the class and listen to this, the classical liberalism of the American founding with all its emphasis on individual rights. And then after this, he goes on to talk about abortion being an individual right. Guys, he does not understand the founding of this country and what the founders th conceived of as being individual rights. They're tethered to responsibilities. I'm gonna have to do an episode on this someday, I think, because this is this. I keep seeing this language of this. It's it was just an enlightenment, secular humanism. That's all individual rights is. No, it wasn't, guys. Individual rights were about responsibilities. You have to be free. You have to have the rights to fulfill the responsibilities that. And whether you want to say nature is God gave it to us, or whether I mean that was a typical uh, term that was used, even by Christians sometimes use that term. By the way. Or if you want to say it's it was given by, um, you want to say the God of the Bible directly, you just want to say that. Either way, um, it, it's a, there's a divine, uh, there, there's a blueprint 
for how societies should function. And the Bill of Rights protects it. And this, this idea that that was, oh, that's the same as abortion rights in 1973. No, it's not. <laughs> no, it's not at all. So Lehman's definition of identity politics is way off from the beginning. If it's 50% Marxist and then 50% American individual rights, you could say, well, 50% of it might be good. And I think that's what he wants you to think. Um, it might, there might be an, a secular individualism, but don't, don't tie this to the American founding. That is sneaky, sneaky. Here's some of the assumptions. Uh, and I mentioned one of these already, binary culture war. He thinks it's, it's right versus left. And the church is like this third way alternative, right? That's the next assumption. The church is the answer. It's a third way alternative. And like I said, it's not really a culture war. It's a culture siege. It's those who want to, the revolutionaries who want to overturn the, the hegemony. And then it's those who want to defend it. Um, and then he wants to say identity politics is an ally. This is, check this out, guys. This is how you know there's a problem with this. Um, actually, I'll go here first. Some people will object to my use of the word ally, and I understand the nervousness. After writing a first draft of this talk, a friend reminded me that this word is too often used to refer to the reshaping of fundamental allegiances. Yeah, that, that friend was right. That's not what I mean at all. I'm using it in the everyday sense of making common cause with someone for a shared end. Okay, so what's the shared end? I'm happy to ally with the Soviet communists in fighting the Nazis. Maybe I'll even learn a battlefield tactic or two, but that doesn't mean I'm recommending Soviet communism. Who are, who's, the, who's the Nazis in this analogy? That's what I want to know. Who are the Nazis? Are they the racist? Is that what Jonathan Lehman thinks? Or the, I don't know, the white supremacists? Who are the Nazis? Identity politics was started to rip down the hegemony. It was a political movement with, a, with an origin, with a history. And it's of the left, completely. It's a Marxist. If you're allying with them and that's their cause, what's your cause? That's a real, real problem. And I think it gives away something about Lehman. Here's his third, here's some quotes that show, show the third way thinking. Identity politics is not pure Marxism. Oh, I already read that one. Um, I have the right to an abortion. I didn't read this quote. I should have the right to pick my pronoun. I have the right to marry whomever I want to marry. To be sure, classical liberalism can become idolatrous too. So he's saying the American founding is classical liberalism and classical liberalism is gay marriage and abortion. Do you hear this? <laughs> this is, I mean, I don't know what he's reading, but this is not at all uh, the case. This is certainly not... The founders would have been shocked. They would have, they would have said that is not what we mean by rights at all. Here we find why there's a pharisaical self-righteousness that in my observation inhabits so many of the conversations surrounding sexual politics, race politics, and identity politics these days. Lehman goes on, he says, so much finger pointing, so much virtue signaling, so much writing people off as white supremacists, sexists, homophobes, neo-Marxists, liberals, and so forth. All it takes is one tweet, one comment, and the guillotine of social media commentary lops off the head. The person is condemned. You're a white supremacist, says the left. You're a race baiter, says the right. You're a sexist, says the left. You're, and I'm not going to say this word, uh, says the right. Look what he's doing here. He's, he's saying, can't we all get along? Can't we stop with the name calls? Well, what's he doing in this? He's actually the one 
That's He's saying, oh, they're a bunch of Pharisees. And then what does he do? He starts condemning them. Can't people stop condemning each other? I'm going to condemn those who condemn each other. That's what he's doing. And the way he sets it up is, well, there's the right and there's the left. And what he does is he takes the extreme elements of the right. So no one would say the word <laughs> that I just put on the screen that I won't say um, on the on the, the mainstream conservative in the mainstream conservative world, you just wouldn't hear it. You only hear that on like the extreme elements. So he uses that and says, that's the, you know, that's the right. And then the left, he uses, you know, typical words that they would use. Now he does mention as well, he says, um, you know, calling someone a neo-Marxist or a liberal, you know, it's, <laughs> which are actually good. Those are actual terms that you would use. I mean, it's, a little different than white supremacist, sexist, and homophobe, which get lopped around all the time for people who aren't those things. Um, but yes, neo-Marxist, liberal, those are these are just horrible that people would, I guess, call themselves that. And that's the online guillotine. Um, but, but he, you know, your, and then the word says the right. I mean, that is not a, so, so he's taking the extreme elements of the right and then the, just the typical elements of the left. And then he just puts them on two, two opposite um, pendulums and, and says, well, you know, these are the two kind of, these are the, this is the battle going on. And they, he makes them so unattractive. Why would anyone want to be part of any of that? Rather than thinking through the fact that there's two political philosophies, and typically there has been a conservative political philosophy in this country uh, that doesn't use that word and that uh, actually holds on to Christian conceptions of what the government ought to be. And we're trying to defend those things. And we have people um, even inside the Republican Party who are trying to defeat us. And then we have, uh, of course, a whole another political party, which is completely antithetical to those uh, that civil ordering. And so doesn't even acknowledge that. And that has been the mainstream. I mean, this isn't Burkean conservative. He's not talking about, you know, this isn't conservative mind Russell Kirk stuff. He's taken like alt-right type and then saying that, yeah, that's the right. That's the right. That's deceptive, guys. And why would he do this? Why would he do this? Uh, he is going to present his third way, the attractive option. So uh, identity, identity politics is an ally. So wh wh who? Who are we trying to go after, right? Uh, here's what he says. Here's how identity politics is an unexpected ally. It reminds us of what the Bible teaches about the pervasiveness of sin. It helps us better understand the Bible's call to repentance and unity. Uh, it encourages us to consider more carefully the prominent role the Bible gives to justice. And it helps us better understand what the Bible teaches about authority. I'm going to go through... Uh, some of these. And I would call it Christianizing identity politics. Um, here's some quotes. It's an ally because it reminds us that sin is from birth. It wears camouflage and it deceives us. Really? Identity politics says that it's, it's, no, it doesn't. Identity politics doesn't say sin is, unless you're saying, I guess, because you were born white, you're sinful. So it's a reminder that sin is from birth. Why can't we get that from the Bible? Why do we need identity politics to tell us this? Identity politics doesn't have the same conception as sin at all. It ties it completely to the social class you're born in. It wears camouflage. No, it doesn't. Identity politics is the opposite of that. It says you can, you can look at a person and where they live and how they identify, which aren't camouflaged, how their skin tone and all of that, you know, take that together and put them on the social ranking. And, uh, and, and that's going to tell us about sin. Uh, it deceives us. Um, sin does. Um, identity politics is a deception. It doesn't, how does it tell us that sin deceives us? It just says that automatically, if you're oppressed, you have a righteousness. If you're oppressor, 
uh, and you have unrighteousness. He admits this in the article, but then he he's like, a tr- I don't know what he's doing. He's attributing biblical characteristics to this and they don't exist. He says, second, identity politics helps us better understand the Bible's call to repentance and the unity that only comes through repentance. No, it doesn't. How does, the, how does identity politics help us do that? Identity politics only can bring, um, it, it's only unified against a common enemy. It brings division otherwise. So if you're not against the common enemy, which hopefully Jonathan Lehman isn't, but uh, it sounds like he is, then identity politics doesn't help us understand repentance and unity. In fact, you're on the perpetual hamster wheel of repentance. And identity politics, if you're in a press category, doesn't help us with that. The Bible helps us with that. How about this? It encourages us to consider more carefully the prominent role the Bible gives to justice. How many sermons have you heard on justice? The advocates of identity politics don't possess a wholly biblical view of justice by any stretch of the imagination, but might they prompt us to study the topic more than we have? Oh my goodness. Um, you know, how many, how many times have you heard a sermon on loving your country? And I'm not saying the Nazis have a corner on the market of loving your country, but couldn't we learn something from them? I mean, guys, what kind of logic is that? What kind of like, no, why would you want to learn from Nazis about loving your country? Why would you want to learn from Marxists in this case, um, about justice? They have no, they don't even know how to pick up the pen to arrive at the paper to talk about, to write about justice. It's not even in their, they can't get the first letter onto the page. Uh, justice is blind and they take the blindfold right off Lady Justice. So we don't learn from them anything about justice. And if Jonathan Lehman thinks we do, he's got a problem. In a sense, identity politics functions in the role of Moses and the law. He actually said that. Identity politics functions in the role of Moses and the law. It brings judgment and condemnation. It reveals our sinful partialities. To use a word from the book of James, it reveals our lack of love. Really, identity politics does that? Because of the, because of the social group you grow up in? Okay. And if nothing else, identity politics is an unexpected ally because it should teach us to do this with groups of people who are not like us. What scripture tells husbands and wives to do? Live with them in an understanding way. No, identity politics, because, look, this is where you'd have to take this. Because homosexuals and feminists decided that they have a common enemy, they're unified. They're learning how to get along together. Christians can learn from that. Uh, no, 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 they can't. Um, let's see, what else does he say here? The fact that we need more love is the main thing I take away from the fact that identity politics can be a useful ally. Identity politics doesn't know about love. It's a political movement that is completely secular. Um, you, maybe you were learning from, maybe you're saying identity politics should do all these things, but that's not what identity politics is. Um, Majority folk like myself too often have not taken the time to read the books or even more to make friends. Listen, to ask questions, to try and understand. So majority folks, he's saying white males. So those white males, just not empathetic enough, clearly. Um, <laughs> I wanna share something with you guys. What makes someone empathetic? What makes someone, um, here, here's what Lehman's saying. Lehman's saying, there's this hierarchy. And white males up here, and they just, they don't look down at these poor underclass people. And if they, if they only would, I mean, identity politics tells us we should, and it'll just create love. Guys, what creates love? Why do we love? Is it through looking down or looking up? Jesus looked out upon Jerusalem, right? He had pity. Jesus had love for people. And there, there's, there's a part of that. But what, what actually, what's the root? What causes love, guys? 
How about this disparity? White males here in Lehman's mind, everyone else down here. What about God? Where does he stack up on this? How about the unattainable standard? And that through the grace of Jesus, we were able to be right with him. You think that'll put some humility in someone, maybe some love, maybe realizing that you're in a very poor state. The state you're in is much closer to the state someone who's living in the gutter is in than you realize because of who God is and because of what sin does. It's looking up that you gain empathy. And it doesn't mean we shouldn't, and we should be quick to hear, slow to speak, but we should be quick to hear everyone. We don't prioritize. We just got to listen to certain racial groups. That's what Lehman wants us to do. And identity politics helps us love through that. That's not what at the root causes love. Lehman gets it wrong here. So he Christianizes identity politics to make it useful to say, well, identity, I'm against identity politics. It's postmodern. It's Marx. It's got Marxist connections, etc. But we can Christianize it somehow. It's common ally. No, it's not. And uh, yeah, here's the standpoint epistemology. I'm going to read you this. Still, we live in a moment when 88% of blacks in the United States say the country needs to keep making changes in order for blacks to have equal rights with whites. Are we sure we want to say 88% of U.S. blacks have been ideological hoodwinked while whites, like me, maintain the objective perspective in light in life in this country? The most charitable indictment I may offer is that we lack empathy. We're failing in, to live in an understanding way. This is standpoint epistemology. <clears throat> He's saying because a majority of the social group says something is the case, it must necessarily be the case. And the only alternative he presents is that uh, this white male perspective, and that's the objective perspective. Well, maybe there's an objective perspective residing outside the white male perspective and any racial. Maybe there's just objectivity. Maybe it's God's perspective. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe God's given us tools to uh, try to understand these things. I mean, I could play this game all day long. Jonathan Lehman, you want to you know discount all the scientists who talk about Darwinian evolution being true? I mean, you just, I mean, look, just because the majority of people say something does not make it true. Even if their experience, they say, says otherwise. Uh, this is, I'm not going to watch the standpoint of epistemology uh, video that I did with Bill Roach, if you want to understand this. Uh, no, tr no identity politics does not offer us an alternative source of truth to the Bible. That's what he says. But it does point to people's experiences, which sometimes might help us to see things in our Bible that we hadn't really paid attention to before. Someone can share with you something you haven't thought of. That's not a novel idea. That's not an idea that came with identity politics. Mark Dever, um, I remember there was a sermon a few months ago where Mark Dever said identity politics were happening in the Council of Jerusalem. That is a presentist understanding that and, and again, Mark Dever, Jonathan Lehman, both nine marks. Um, that that's that's insane. <laughs> no, <laughs> there. Unless you think that identity politics is inescapable and it's just always there, but um, that that's not true. It actually has an origin in history. And to take concepts like just learning from someone else, well, that's identity politics. No, no, it's not. Why does it have identity politics? Is it, it has a history and it's a lot more narrow than just that. All right, uh, let's talk about this. Um, guilting Christians. He says, but you can understand why minority folk look looking around, noticing how whites still huddle in the same neighborhoods and possess 13 times the average household wealth might ask themselves, have things really changed that much? Well, clearly Jonathan Lehman isn't talking about Appalachia and the poor regions in Appalachia. 
He's just talking about, he, he, he's, this is demographic games going on here. Um, depends how you cut, how you slice the pie, how, how things actually look. We as Christians should be willing to admit that even, that maybe, just maybe, we're more self-interested and less loving than we think. Even as we give ourselves doctor's notes that say racism free. I'm asking you to think about the posture of our hearts as Christians, not policy, but heart posture. That's the conversation I'm having. So uh, this, is, this is a guilty thing. This is, I've said this from the beginning of the social justice movement. It gets people to try to feel guilty for things that they're not even guilty for. Well, you're guilty for having more income because you, know, you must be having, taking advantage of white privilege. And as soon as you start pointing out things like I just mentioned, like, you know, what about in Appalachia? Or what about worldwide? What about, you know, you can split this up so many different ways. Geographically, should we split it up that way? Should we split it up by age? Should we split up? You start realizing this is manipulation. And it is. It's guilt manipulation. And he said, well, it's not for a political purpose. But that's what identity politics is. <laughs> identity politics is all about politics. So Jonathan Lehman's like, well, I'm not saying this. It's not a policy thing. It's just a heart posture. Well, <laughs> that's not identity politics then. Identity politics, their purpose is to get you to feel guilty, to then have a, it, it's for a political purpose, to subdue you if you are an oppressor. Maybe you've heard of the book White Fragility, he says, which talks about the fact that white folk can have fragile eagles, uh, egos and can't take criticism about around the topic of race. What is that? That's good old fashioned offensiveness. It's pride. And of course, pride's a sin. Uh, what does that even mean? They can't take criticism around the topic of race. If you're talking about you're going to start guilting people because they have a certain level of income and that, that in and of itself means they're guilty. And, that, and if you're defining that as, well, they just can't talk about race. Well, then, yeah, they're going to get defensive because you're falsely accusing them. That's not pride. Aye, aye, aye. So some questions that I have for Jonathan Lehman, and I could have come up with a lot more, but what about national unity? Think about this with me for a moment. Um, we're fragmented right now in the United States and we're, you know, national unity is going down the tubes. Trump kind of capitalized on, Hey, we're Americans, no matter what country you, you came from, your parents came, doesn't matter. You're Americans. And, uh, and we're proud about being Americans. And there's certain things that make us Americans it's national, trying to bring back some kind of a national unity, but we don't teach history the same way. It's just, you know, this is a crummy place. And so national unity is going down. So people's identities now are, you know, the kind of music that they listen to is like a primary identity for some people or, you know, their sexual preferences. That's the thing. It's my race. It's whatever the case may be. So national unity is kind of like getting lost in a way. And Lehman wants to say that uh, Christian unity, like that's, that's the Christians should be teaching the church or, or I'm sorry, the church should be teaching um, the, the world about where the, where the political um, uh, model, if you will, this is what, what what should be happening and it's it kind of like well yeah but we live in a fallen world and you're not we, we we would love it if everyone in this country was saved and if they operated the way um the, the kind of love that church people should have for one another i agree with that i don't have any disagreement with lehman there but um but there is something there there is something in the bible about national unity nation of israel i mean there's a history god wanted them to remember it what the lord has done in history in time Acts 17 paul talks about how god established the borders and these are really sociolinguistic groups and there's cultures surrounding these things and and, and these guys most of these guys in big eva and um they're, they're very influenced by this neo-kyperian strain of theology which kind of treats culture as this artificial like we got to manufacture culture it's uh, i'm gonna do an episode on this one day but it's it's like it's what um it, it's 
taking these resources and forming them around us. That's what culture is. And culture is it's traditions over time. It happens organically. It's not artificial. It's organic. And, uh, and so Lehman seems to, um, I don't think he, he has a place for that in, in his thinking here. He doesn't ever talk about, well, is national unity, does that bother him? Why can't that be an answer to this? Why can't national unity? Or why can't, um, why can't like, you know, secession or something, or, you know, different states having their own, their, their, their own cultures and getting rid of the, you know, this big federal overarching, uh, big government. Uh, why can't uh, certain regions, if they want to form, they want to secede, form their own country. California can be California. You know, why, why isn't that an answer to this question? How come the only answer is, well, you just got to love and everyone's got to be like the church. Um, I, I mean, I, I don't get it, to be honest with you. It's not a, it's not a feasible political solution in every way. It's a really good, I, I agree. They, yeah, everyone should be like the church. But when you're, when you're looking at the big picture, you're looking at this country, maybe human scale is the problem. Maybe it's just too big. Maybe there's too many people of different cultures and we need to split it up. I know people hate when I say that sometimes, but why can't that be the answer? Or why can't, if you don't want to split it up, why can't we, you know, let's promote, let's, let's get back to teaching the great things about America and national unity. And uh, he doesn't seem to, those aren't solutions apparently. Um, the other thing is, why couldn't identity pol identifying with the church be a form of identity politics? So apparently, like, the church transcends the, the negative parts of identity politics, but why can't the church, in Lehman's definition at least, why can't that be just a new form of identity politics? I'm a Christian. This is my identity. And uh, good question, I think. Uh, if justice is blind, what can identity politics possibly teach us about justice? And then... Um, Let's see. The other thing is, uh, let's see. He says, we need to point to the church as the political hope of the nations where we find our primary identity together in Christ. So then why do we need identity politics if that's the case? If it's if the church is the answer, what, what need is there for any kind of identity politics? So those are some of the questions I have for Jonathan Lehman. Guys, I am not, uh, I don't, like being just like the bad guy and like, oh, it's all bad. No, there's some good things Jonathan Lehman said. He admitted kind of some of the origins of identity politics, but then he turns around and he tries to Christianize it. Why? What's up with that? Why do we have to use identity politics and critical race theory as analytical tools? They're not. <laughs> we have the, we, this is sufficient. Either this is sufficient or it's not. And these guys want to pull in these things from these other disciplines uh, and, and they have fundamental, they're not like, they're not tools that we can't, they're not like logic. It's not like the laws of logic being used as a tool, which is inescapable, which is fundamental to reality. No, these are, these contradict the very book. And you admit it, Jonathan Lehman, you admit it, it contradicts this. So then why is it, why are we trying to take it and then use it? That's my critique, <laughs> Jonathan Lehman. I hope you all are happy. Those who asked me to do a critique of this, and this is a mega episode now. Um, big things coming, guys. Some big things coming. So stay tuned, please. Thank you for your support. God bless, and we'll talk to you later. Bye. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. 
Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply at LifeMD.com. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications through LifeMD? LifeMD is now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. You just take your shot. It doesn't feel like you're on a diet. What I wasn't expecting it to do was to shut off the food noise. This was life-altering, and if I can do it, I feel like anybody can do it. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com.